Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We've got such great radio voices. Uh. It, 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 whenever you do your mic check, it just sounds like silk. Mic check. Yeah, whenever someone tells me that, <laughs> I, I always make the comment that I, I we both have good faces for radio. Oh, ho, 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 ho. Yeah, yes. I know. But, yes, so funny, oh, so oh, clever. Mainly because I don't know how to deal with compliments. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll deal with that in uh, a special episode of Reconsider, <laughs> uh, Therapy for Xander. <laughs> So, welcome everyone to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, the illustrious Agora Podcast Network, now with new people. I guess we already mentioned Sam Hume, but Sam Hume is really good. You should seriously go check him out. Um, he does Pax Britannica and History of Witchcraft. And History of Witchcraft, I actually listened to an episode. It's fun. So, yes, and we don't do the thinking for you. That's the other part. And we're going to be talking about the United States Postal Service today. Awesome. Yeah, it's... Uh... Very clearly front and center in a lot of people's minds what's going on with, uh, I, I don't even know what to call this issue necessarily, Eric. It's like the USPS, but it's also Trump's statements and actions toward the USPS and the joy. We'll just call it the USPS umbrella of stuff. Cons- I mean, it's conspiracy, seriously, right? I mean, it's if you think about it, the narratives on, and I know we'll get into this, but the narratives on both sides are, are very conspiratorial, mm-hmm. right? There is either like a conspiracy to to unfairly unseat a, a the great president by getting fraudulent mail-in voting to stuff ballot boxes and and such that yeah that's one and then the other one is there's a conspiracy to destroy the United States Postal Service to undermine the election and that'll somehow keep Trump elected we're going to be talking through both of these yeah we did something a little bit different on this episode um Eric and I both kind of attack this from different angles. And a lot of times the way we'll work is we'll collaborate on the research and we'll kind of like chip in ideas into a shared Google document. And we don't really have a script, but it kind of helps us organize our thoughts. So we kind of know like in the flow of the conversation where we wanted to go. We don't have any of that this time. Um, I have focused almost entirely on the issue of voter fraud and have actually put together uh, a fairly lengthy deep dive on voter fraud in the U.S., which we'll be publishing the week of August 24th. It's something we haven't really done before this length. It's kind of like an investigation, and we find a couple of strange things that haven't been covered anywhere else or in very few places. So we'll talk about that. And then, Eric, you focused on the issue of you know slowing down the USPS, right? 
Yeah, and I was too lazy to make a long-form article about it, so I've just got a bunch of notes that I'm going to be reading from. But Xander and I don't have, haven't done the, the same kind of review of each other's notes that we normally do, so we'll probably be asking a number of questions that we would normally ask beforehand like in the in the episode creation process we're just going to ask them live and see how y'all like it and you can give us feedback on that in fact there's a great way to give us feedback along with this uh those of you who are on the mailing list which everyone else should be if you're not because you missed it (laughs) but those of you who are on the mailing list are already aware of the survey uh and you filled it out and by the time you're listening to this episode we've already sent the prizes So those of you who are not on the mailing list, there is still a survey. We're going to put it on with these show notes. Uh, The prizes have been dispersed, so you're not getting a prize. But I know so many of y'all considerates reach, you know, take time to reach out, to email us and give us thoughts and feedback. And we're really grateful for it. And so we decided to create a survey to standardize some of this stuff and ask some of the questions that we really want your feedback on to make better content. So go to the, it's five minutes. If you could go to the show notes, take the survey, we'd be super grateful. It means better content for you. Indeed. And uh, lastly, I guess the last bit of housekeeping here, a lot of this episode was encouraged or uh, kind of inspired by a conversation that we had in our Facebook group. So if you haven't joined the Facebook group, uh, just search for Reconsider Media on uh, Facebook or kind of scroll around on our website. We have links to it at the end of most articles now or most recent articles. So we actively engage with the considerate community out there because we really do just kind of consider ourselves to be two voices amongst a greater considerate tribe that's really just trying to find language to work across with other tribes that might be kind of locked into their own little echo chamber. That's what the considerate Mm. community is. So we love interacting with you and we love learning from you and we love drawing inspiration for shows from you. So check out Facebook and um, I guess, oh, Patreon, new Patreon. Oh yeah, we've we've had a number of new patrons recently. We're going to be updating the, so thank you, for, obviously everyone who's left a review, everyone who has you know, donated money, it means the world to us. As you can see, we're doing a lot with the money. Lots is changing. It all costs money because we're not experts on websites or stuff. And and so it means the world to us. And we will be actually changing and upgrading a lot of our perks. So those of you who have already pledged, uh, you'll just be hearing from us saying, ta-da, more stuff. And those of you who haven't yet, uh, you can go check out patreon.com slash reconsider and there's even cooler stuff than there was before so if you've been thinking oh you know i should really should really patronize these guys at some point there's no better time that's that's a funny synonym patronize well doesn't also mean like to talk yeah it means like talk (laughs) down to yeah anyways housekeeping done on to the show (laughs) (laughs) i i like words they're fun um Okay, everyone's trying to steal the election. Go! Ah, yes, right, exactly. Uh, so I focus on voter fraud. And as, as, you, as you might know at this point, uh, there are two tribes with two narratives. And a lot of the times, uh, Reconsider will try to emphasize the point that there are a lot more than two tribes. In fact, that's kind of like part of our core message is that there are lots of mm-hmm. subdivisions along the spectrum. And that if you just ask the question a little bit differently, you actually get 
major agreement across aisles. It's just often the question isn't phrased that way because it's not good for the people asking the questions, like news networks. Yes. Um, in this case, I it really does seem, and this is just both from my my personal interpretation and also some data that I include in this long form investigation, that there seem to be two tribes. Either you think that uh, the voter fraud is going to undermine the legitimacy of the 2020 election, or Trump, by attacking the USPS, is going to undermine the legitimacy of the election. But what is particularly concerning about these two narratives is it, it kind of goes a step further even than a lot of other topics that are hot button issues now, because it has to do with the legitimacy of the election of American institutions. And that's kind of been something that a lot of people, a lot of Americans have agreed on for a long time, that at least we have an election, at least, you know, there's a peaceful transition of power. That's kind of, you know, one of the things that makes us good or special or unique, not not unique anymore, but at one point is a differentiating factor. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I struggle to imagine a nation throughout its entire history that has had 100%, you know, peaceful transitions of power. Now I know we're pretty young, right? So we've got a bit of an advantage in that. But if you think about it, the French, you know, the French, the French, their first Republic was after ours started and they're on their sixth. Right. And we're still on our first. And, you know, maybe, maybe you could argue the civil war was not exactly a peaceful transition of power because it was the South trying to split off in reaction to the election results themselves. So uh, anyway, I, you know, I, I still pat us on yeah. the back. Now uh, let's see, where are they going with this? Um, at the, <laughs> at, at the core of both of these narratives is the idea that voter fraud is, either exists and is a problem or es- essentially is inconsequential, but, you can't detach the idea of voter fraud from these two. So I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll dig into it. I'll see what each side is talking, is, is talking about when it comes to voter fraud and what the data is. And I, I ended up going down a really deep rabbit hole that I kind of wasn't anticipating. Um, a lot of the data that I wanted to cover is there. It's in the long form report, but um, I came across this other organization that we'll talk about a little bit more. Um <laughs> which has the worst acronyms. (laughs) The Public Interest Legal Foundation, also known as... PILF. 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 (laughs) I almost couldn't believe it. Um, Yeah. But, you know, the the argument is basically this. Look, on the one side, uh, voter fraud exists in really, really small numbers. There have been research papers on it. It's not a big deal. Forget about it. On the other side, the argument is... There have been an incredible number of mail-in ballots sent that have been unaccounted for. There are lots of examples of voter fraud that have been caught. You just have to look around. So if you're not paying attention to that, you're kind of missing out on it. Um, and the, the thing that, that, that I did that I haven't seen in a whole lot of other places is kind of, is kind of just click through the links and, and follow the, the sources that a lot of these uh, major outlets are, are referencing. And I did that for... Sources on that lean both left and lean right, according to third-party bias checks, like MediaBiasFactCheck.com and All Sides, both of which are great references that I recommend. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh my gosh, this article is so long, I'm almost not exactly sure where to start. Um, we, we know that there are two tribes narratives, but something that Eric talks about in his book Wedged, if you haven't bought, you should, is that... Um, Oftentimes, you know, uh, there is often broad agreement, even if it doesn't look like that way. So maybe first we can just look at the numbers. 
and see what people think. And this is from a YouGov poll published uh, about a week ago, so pretty recently. Um, so, do you approve or disapprove of President Trump's effort to block funding for the Postal Service to prevent mail-in voting uh, in the election? And which is a really blunt way of asking it, right? So we we study, you know, we look at a lot of polls, and one of the things we pay attention to is how polls, how these questions are phrased. Those of you who have read Wedged know that if you change how you ask the question, you get a very different response. And this one goes right into it, right? It's, it is taking the implications. So let me read that yeah. to you again. Do you approve or disapprove of President Trump's effort to block funding for the Postal Service to prevent mail-in voting in the election? So it takes for granted that the president is indeed trying to block funding for the Postal Service to prevent mail-in voting for the election. Right. So it's not asking whether you think he's doing that or how likely it is that he's trying to prevent mail in voting for the election or something. It, you know, YouGov, which gets a B in 538's uh, rating system, which is good. Uh, it's, it, it, there are not a lot of A's. So they get a B grade. It, they do a good job, according to Nate Silver's team. And, and, and they. They go straight into this saying, we're taking it for granted that he's doing this. Do you think, do you approve of it or not? And that was not the question I was expecting, but it does give us some really interesting answer, uh, results. It does. And uh, at, from that question, we find that 59% of Americans either strongly uh, disapprove or somewhat disapprove of President Trump's effort. But it's a very specific question. Now, this question was published in like a 190-page long, um, it's not a book, it's just a PDF you can go see, with lots and lots and lots of different questions. So it might be that, you know, asking such a specific question is a little polarizing. Um, I didn't look through every other question because there's 190 pages of it. But almost 60% of America seems to disprove, according to this question, of Trump's effort to block mail and vote. Now, if you break that same question up along party lines... Uh, I mean, it it really is split along the tribes. Strongly disapprove. That category is 47% for all Americans, but for Democrats, it's 80%, and for Republicans, it's 9%. So only 9% of Republicans disapprove of, of Trump's actions, 80% strongly. strongly. Strongly disapprove. Yeah, it's um, nine. It's uh, 23% of re uh, Republicans either somewhat disapprove or strongly disapprove, compared to... Uh, 87% uh, Democrats either strongly disapprove or somewhat disapprove. So a huge split along party lines, right? Mm -hmm. So anecdotally, my sense from just kind of like being out there in the world and seeing what people are saying kind of seems to match up with these numbers. There is a strong split along these tribes. And there's not a whole lot of agreement. I do think there's a... It's worth noting the independent response here because independents just somehow just tend to be split half and half all the time. And so they're, they're, uh, you know, I, I like to think of myself as an independent, so don't take this too personally, fellow independents, but it's often like kind of useless to ask independents how they feel about <laughs> something. And, um, but in this case, 58% uh, disapprove and what's that? 28% uh, approve. So that's, so by more than two to one, you know, and there's a bunch who are not sure, but by more than two to one, independence like, ooh, this is this is I do not approve. This is not a good idea, and that is not as I'm as I sort of mentioned. That is not always the case, and so at least you know the the sort of folks who 
the sort of folks who say, well, I don't really feel like I'm part of one of these tribes are pretty squarely in the disapprove camp right now. Yeah. So, so that's, uh, but, uh, let's see. Yeah. That, that's the sound I make when I'm putting around my house. My, my girlfriend, uh, remarks on it regularly. Um, another interesting question that you asked that was kind of on the same topic from the same set of questions was, uh, this question, Donald Trump has repeatedly claimed that the 2020 election will be, quote, rigged against him, which comes closest to to your view. And there are a handful of views. And one was, quote, Trump legitimately fears that fraudulent postal voting will cost him the election. And ugh, so long. Trump is trying to delegitimize the outcome because blah, blah, blah. So either uh, legitimate fear of voter fraud or Trump's trying to de- delegitimize the election because he's afraid he's not going to get a majority. And the percentage of Americans that think that Trump is trying to delegitimize the outcome because he's afraid of it is 59%. And the percentage of Americans that think that Trump's fears of fraudulent voting are legitimate is about 41%. But again, when you look at that split across party lines, um, it's pretty it's pretty stark. Um, 88% of Democrats think that Trump is trying to delegitimize the election, and 80% of Republicans think that Trump's fears are fraudulent. And here again, on the independent side, a little bit more evenly split. Yeah, 57-43 on the side of attempting to delegitimize. Again, a very stark question here. There's no option for, I don't know, there's no option for, uh, as Deng Xiaoping said about Mao, he fires empty cannons, right? There's, There's nothing about, oh, Trump's just trying to make noise, he's just trying to distract, you know, he's not actually trying to you know, cripple the election and he doesn't actually fear uh, that the election is actually fraudulent or legitimately, right? Or there was no option for Trump illegitimately fears or incorrectly fears that fraudulent postal voters voting will cost him the election. So a limited number of choices here in this. And so that's just something we got to keep in mind is that, you know, there are a lot of options for, hey, there could be an alternate form of reality that YouGov didn't give people the option to pick from. All these numbers between these two options add up to 100%. There was no other. So if you had to pick one, most people think he's trying to delegitimize the outcome of the election because he doesn't think he'll win a majority of votes, Uh, including 20% of Republicans, by the way, which is not a tiny number when you're trying to get those guys to vote Mm -hmm. for you. So, uh, and, you know, and again, most, you know, most independents, 57% of them. So, it does, certainly by the way that these polls are framed, you have this split in tribal narratives, right? The red tribe says voter fraud is going to undermine the legitimacy of the 2020 election. Blue tribe says Trump is going to undermine the legitimacy of the 2020 election. And unfortunately, there just aren't enough polls yet out there with different wording to see how many people think, well, this is all just stupid, right? You know, that the, 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 you know, the, the, or, or that, sorry, if, um, editor, if you could get rid of me going, that would be great. Back to it. There are, there is no option for probably, you know, I think the election is going to be fine, right? It's not going to be delegitimized. And so, it, you know, by this polling, everyone agrees the 2020 election is not going to be legitimate because of someone. But what we don't know is how many people think actually 
there's a fairly low risk that the 2020 election will be delegitimized. And uh, we'll get a little bit more into that in, in my section. Part of what I, I like about this issue, just from like a researcher's perspective, it's, is that some of the data exists. Uh, it's out there. You just got to go hunting for it. And it's not all cited in all of the searches that you'll come across. And when, I, when we publish this long form article, we have the sources at the, at the, at the bottom that we used. So you can kind of click through and see what the narratives are in a number of different places. But a lot of this data does exist. But what I notice is that the narratives about voter fraud are nuanced in that they're kind of split into different categories. There are the cases of intentional voter fraud, and there's data related to that. There are cases of double counting. So, you know, one person is registered twice in different states or something like that, and they vote twice. That's another issue and another data set that you need to focus on. And then there's the issue of non-citizen voting. And a lot of the time, uh, a lot of the times these three or two of the three get conflated in, in the same discussion. So it's worth noticing that. Now, with intentional voting uh, voter fraud, it's kind of just what it sounds like, right? It is someone actually went out of their way to commit fraud. And there is a database maintained by the Heritage Foundation that keeps track of these. And as of couple of days ago, there were about 1,300 proven cases of voter fraud. And this goes back to 1993. So it's over a long period of time, which have resulted in about 1,120 criminal convictions. So the majority of cases of confirmed intentional voting fraud tracked by heritage uh, resulted in some sort of conviction over 90%. Um, and that resulted in you know a combination of um, either penalties or the need to do community service. I didn't click through every single one of those cases, but a lot of the times it was kind of like a fine with you have to do like 72 hours of community service. I didn't see a ton of examples of people being thrown in jail, but that's intentional voting fraud. That's someone going out and purposely trying to game the system. The next category is double counting, and that can be either intentional or unintentional because someone who is going out and committing voting fraud is probably you know resulting in their vote being counted twice somehow, whether it's, you know, purposefully gaming a registration somewhere and getting on the voter polls in another state or, you know, strongly encouraging or coercing someone to vote for them. But there's also a lot of unintentional vote, uh, double counting. For example, if you move from one city to another, or one state to another, and you re-register on another uh, state's, you know, with their DMV, but forget to take it off the old state. And then you might end up having two addresses and while you might not vote twice, you are still being counted twice in terms of being a registered voter on two different roles. And that's that's actually another distinction worth noting is a lot of the research, including uh, by the PILF, um, talks a lot about... <laughs> are you going to... I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this episode, but <laughs> saying PILF. They, a lot of the times, will look at double-counted voter registrations as opposed to double counted votes clearly one of those you're registered in two different places and you go out of your way to vote in both in both places the other one you might just not know about it so there's a lot of unintentional cases of double voter registration that's harder to track because they're not confirmed and you have to do a little bit of statistics to try to infer what the total size of the double counting problem is in the u.s uh lastly there is non-citizen voting, which just means that someone who's not a U.S. citizen 
has nevertheless somehow ended up on a voter poll and uh, is either a registered voter or is a registered voter and has cast a poll uh, a vote when they are not supposed to. And non-citizen voting is the is this is what the PILF looks at in great depth. And a lot of their data is about non-citizen voting and a lot of right-leaning, uh, again, according to Media Fact Check Bias and all sides, a lot of right-leaning large publications like the Washington Times and Fox News quote PILF as a source. And that's ultimately what drove me down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out what exactly they were. Yeah. So the what's what's kind of in, what's kind of incredible like once we get into PILF here is and I think it's important to share this because it you know everything has some kind of bias and I think we need to understand what is the bias that we're seeing from Pilfier. And so the Public Interest Legal Foundation released a report that is a picture of Virginia at night. Uh, and it has a UFO flying saucer shining a light onto a field. And in uh, I'm gonna read I'm gonna read this as I think the font intends. <laughs> Because it's a goofy font. Alien invasion in Virginia. The discovery and cover-up of non-citizen registration and voting. So that's part one. And then part two, uh, even bigger flying saucer. (laughs) Alien invasion two. The sequel to the discovery and cover-up of non-citizen registration and voting in Virginia. And then below it says, welcome to Virginia. Virginia is for aliens. And so it, unfortunately, the... You know, unfortunately, the I know they say don't judge a book by its cover, but these guys picked their cover and uh, and and it suggests a certain level of a certain way of thinking about this. For example, um, they talk about the number of non-citizens voting. Well, there are non-citizens who are not aliens, right? If you hold a green card, you are an American person. You are not an alien anymore. Uh, if you have a visa, right, you are a resident, you're a resident, resident visa, you're a resident alien. Uh, but if you are a green card holder, you are not an alien, but you still can't vote because you're not a citizen. So there's also this space in between. And so even using the term alien implies uh, that the study focuses specifically on aliens, not on green card holders when that's not clear. And so it does mean that there's potentially some bias in this that we would want to be tipped off to. And as Xander discovered, there are a few problems in the study that they did. And and those problems propagated out to many, many news outlets because many news outlets cited PILF because they seem to be the only ones who uh, have done, you know, well, sorry, they're not the only ones who have done research. But they did come up, I, as I understand it, with the biggest numbers. That I could find. Um, and, and if you have other numbers, yeah. by all means, Xander, ReconsiderMedia.com. Um, but piggybacking, Eric, on what you said about there being this nuance between green card holders and aliens, and et cetera, et cetera. If you go and look at the PDF of Alien Invasion in Virginia by PILF, again, link on our, our website, um, on the very first page, there's a footnote that says that PILF actually removed exhibits. And by the way, they refer to themselves as PILF in this report. This is not just me being cheap. 
Uh, PILF removed exhibits one and seven to the report um, because it uh, reproduced uh, personal information that named people, which, you know, a lot of these records are public, so that's not necessarily egregious. But um, this is, I'm citing PILF here. PILF recognizes that individuals in exhibits one and seven were in fact citizens and that these citizens did not commit felonies. And the reason they felt <laughs> required to do that is because later in the report, um, they say that nearly 200 verified ballots were cast before they were removed from the rolls. Each one of them is likely a felon. So they came kind of close, it seems, to mischaracterizing a lot of either, you know, legal voters or citizens as committing felonies when in fact they hadn't. And those exhibits are not available anywhere on their website, I'd look. Um, so what do the PILF's numbers actually say? They have these two reports. The first one is Alien Invasion 1. It came out in 2016 and it looked at eight counties in Virginia. And Alien Invasion 1 found that there were 1,046 aliens who registered to vote illegally. Now, that doesn't mean that 1,046 votes were cast, illegal votes were cast, just that those 1,046 individuals who were non-citizens ended up on voter rolls somehow in those eight counties in Virginia. And PILF's argument is, well, this is just the tip of the iceberg. These are only, these cases are only caught when like someone goes into the DMV to have their registration updated and like it's caught by accident or something like that. So we don't know the true scale of voter fraud. Uh, right. There there may very well be in those eight counties substantially more than 1,046 uh, illegal registrations in September 2016 because no one looked through every single registration and said, hmm, let's check this against, you know, the Social Security database or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, exactly. And that's the, the challenge with a data set like that is it's not attempting to generalize to the true scale of the problem. It's kind of just saying, this exists. Okay, we know it exists. But so, yeah, and it could be yeah, big. Yeah. We don't know. We don't know. For that, we'll need to go to other data, which we'll get to uh, in a little bit when we talk about the double counting. Um, Alien Invasion 2, the second one, tries to expand upon Alien Invasion 1 by looking at all of the, uh, the entire state of Virginia. And... Sort of the, the summary finding from this report, which is about 20 pages long, that I could tell uh, is this. Uh, Pill writes that, quote, of these legal registrants, 1,852 cast nearly 7,500 ballots in elections dating back to 1988. Right. So, you know, without context, is that a big number? I don't know. Right. Is that a lot? Could that tip an election? I don't know. Now, we've heard of some, you know, local elections being decided by a few votes. So maybe. But uh, but for a little bit of a sense of scale, Xander pulled up a little bit more data here from elections.virginia.gov. Thank you, Xander. From 1988 to 2018, which is the period in which those 7,500, uh, you know, seemingly illegal ballots were cast, 67 million total ballots were cast in the state of Virginia, which means that of those 7,500 illegal votes, or those seven, those 7,500 illegal votes would account for 0.01% of all votes over the 30 years. So one, 10, 000, one in 10,000 votes 
in that case would be illegal votes. Again, because nobody did a a total deep dive of you know every registration and every vote against something like the social security database, it means that number could be bigger, but we have no idea how much bigger. And this organization kind of is explicitly making the case that non-citizen voting is a really major problem. I, I'm really not, I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but you can go and read what they write. And that's, you'll see that's basically the case. And in my mind, a 0.01% of votes over, you know, a 30-year uh, period seems like a pretty low rate of actual non-citizen voting fraud. Um, but, you know, again, we can debate about what high and low is there, right? Let's see. So that's non-citizen. We actually kind of skipped over double counting. Double counting is one of the more challenging categories to of of voting of voting fraud to get your head around because you do need oh right yeah. do need to do a little bit of statistical analysis to try to get to the scales of the actual problem, and that just means that you know like when YouGov conducts a poll, they go out and they get a sample of fifteen hundred people, and they are saying we are generalizing that these results hold true for the entire American population. And clearly, they don't always, right? That's that's part of the challenge with statistics is making sure you're getting a representative sample. And, you know, people study this stuff their entire lives. It's not necessarily easy. Um, so some of the, a lot of the information that, that we have on double counting actually comes from academic research. If you, let's see, I, I cited two or three different reports in this in this long form investigation, one of which was an article written a paper, an academic paper written last year, which was a collaboration of researchers at Stanford, Harvard, UPenn, and Microsoft. Microsoft has a research division, apparently. I didn't know that. And they found that using statistical inference, so they are trying to estimate the total size of the problem here, that in the 2012 election, somewhere between 20,000 and 33,000 double votes were cast in the entire election. Which is out of about a hundred million votes. Yeah, one hundred twenty-six million Americans voted in twenty twelve. A separate report, that w- which was not academic, but it was it was done using data mining. So these were you know data scientists that kind of drilled down into the numbers that were available to them. It was a company called Simpatico Systems, and in twenty seventeen they actually presented these findings to the White House. It was a White House commission on um, voting fraud links in again links in the document and they found something similar they found that about in the 2016 election this time about 40,000 double votes and what's interesting to me about that is that these are two completely different studies uh potentially using different models um probably using different models because they're you know one's an academic and a group of people and another is not non-academic and a completely different group of people and they're finding at least the same order of magnitude tens of thousands tens of thousands of double votes cast um that seems like it seems reasonable to me based on on that data to assume that that's probably the right order of magnitude. But, you know, they caveat in these reports that there are some data challenges, one of which is counties in the U.S. generally conduct elections. Sometimes it's at a lower level than that. It's like a city or whatever. But many of these counties don't have data systems that can talk to each other. So it's actually hard to one, get the data sometimes because it's not available due to privacy laws or whatever, and to compare the data that does exist across county lines and to check for those double instances of social security numbers or similar voting, um, uh, people voting twice, so on and so forth. 
So there are challenges in analyzing the data, but I think we can reasonably talk about the scale of double voting in the U.S. in the last two presidential elections being somewhere between 20 to 40,000. Yeah. And the, the presentation from Simpatico is on whitehouse.gov. It's actually, if you go check it out, it's kind of incredible that I, I, I suspect someone was just flipping through these slides and... They're not, I don't know, they're, they're not good at building slides. Let's just say <laughs> that. But they do get the point across. And what they, what they believe is that there's, you know, some clerical error going on. Uh, sometimes a person actually votes twice. And uh, sometimes someone is impersonated somewhere else, right? So someone pretends to be Xander. Uh, so Xander votes. And then someone else who pretends to be Van- Xander also votes. And sometimes Xander votes twice. Not actually. Uh, All the FBI people listening, I'm just using Xander as an example. But one of the things they note, uh, so they found, you know, 8,500 duplicate votes in in the country of which they found uh, 2,200 duplicate voters in Florida in 2016. And that was four times Bush's margin of victory in Florida in 2000. So they do find that, look, if it's really, really, really tight, Right, because because Bush won by 537 votes total uh, in in Florida, and that that made the difference in the election, uh, of which 2,200 were duplicate. Right, and or sorry, not sorry, 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 the 2,200 duplicate was in 2016. So they say they estimate that you know sure probably in 2000 there were some duplicate votes as well. We just don't know, but uh, but prop you know why not? And so. What that means is they sit there and they say, "Yeah, this is meaningful." Now, it's also the case that this is a uh, this is a contractor that gets paid a fair amount of money by the government, and so if we look at their conclusion, you know, more analysis is needed is their recommendation, right? So, which means pay us more money, and so it's also worth noting that they, you know, they they have an incentive to say, "Well, we just need to do more." I mean, we just need to do a lot more work, right? And which which is also not unreasonable, right? It doesn't just mean you, you can't, you can't just uh, write them off because they were probably given a fairly small budget at the outset to see, is this even a problem worth digging deeper into, right? That's what I would do if I was hiring them. Uh, and then if it was, if it seemed big enough, then I would say, okay, here's more money, keep digging. And do we know, did Simpatico keep going? Did they, did they, you know, they recommended more analysis and I don't, it's not clear to me if they've actually done. I don't know. I should, I should look into that. I don't know. Cool. We'll follow up with it. One thing that they know at the end summary, this is not a red issue or a blue issue. So what we, what, what I was looking for that I didn't see was, Hey, was there a bias towards either Democrats or Republicans doing this? And they don't say one way or another. But they do say, of course, you know, look, this isn't a red issue or a blue issue. We, of course, all want, you know, where we'd all agree as Americans is we would want, uh, you know, every, every, for everyone who casts a vote, for their vote to be, you know, for everyone who casts a vote, for them to be a U.S. citizen, for them to have voted once, for nobody have to have pretended to vote for them, and for their vote to be counted accurately, right? We, we want the election to be clean, in short. So, uh, you know, we all have an interest in this. What is so interesting about what we're seeing in 2020 here is that it's not that Americans want something different. It's not that one of the, you know one group of Americans wants a fraudulent election, the other doesn't. It's that we disagree on reality, 
right? We think that, you know, one one tribe thinks that uh, mail-in voting is somehow going to vastly increase the amount of voter fraud in an election to the point that it threatens the legitimacy of the election. And one group thinks that, you know, hey, we have to vote by mail this year. There's a bloody pandemic going on. Come on, guys. And uh, if you make it harder to vote by mail, then a lot of people are going to be disenfranchised, which I guess I, in my list of things that Americans agree on, right? One thing we probably don't agree on is that, hey, man, every citizen should have a very, very easy time voting. Uh, that seems to be something we don't necessarily agree on, which I find amazing. But, you know, but it's but but the the blue tribe seems seems not to think that voter fraud is a major risk. They seem to believe that voter suppression is a major risk and the red tribe, the opposite. Right. They don't think voter suppression is a major problem. They think voter fraud is a major problem. So uh, and the thing about voters, voter, what's interesting is is it seems to be the case that, you know, there's a lot of academic papers that suggest uh, that that I've read that I, I'm unable to cite right now, but there are there, there seem to be legitimate studies that suggest that there has been voter suppression in the past, but that seems to be insufficient to question the results of the election. We go like, ah, well, you got away with, you suppress, you know, like, because people didn't vote, right? So like, you got away with it, you took away that ballot box, we're unhappy about it, but you know, they didn't vote, so... Uh, so whatever the count was, was the count. Whereas if there's fraud, so like, so, you know, you've artificially lost some votes in one way and we kind of, we, we get angry, but we accept the result. And, but if there are extra votes in some way, right, that shouldn't be there. That seems like the kind of, you know, we've never had a national election where, you know, where, where the outcome has seemed highly illegitimate, but it would be the case. It seems like it would be the case that, if we looked and we said, holy smokes, look at all these fake votes, that that seriously could undermine the legitimacy of an election. And so we all have this shared interest in it. We just have different ideas of what's really at risk and what can happen. And I think the reason the Blue Tribe's so scared is that because in the past, you know, they, they have a much stronger uh, narrative around voter suppression and and I'm not saying that they shouldn't or that they should, but but they do. And and that that their narrative is that there's been a lot of voter suppression and that's never that's never there's never been a reckoning about that, right? The 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 Republicans who suppress voters, they get away with it, and Trump's trying to suppress the vote and he's gonna get away with it. And so he's going to win an election he shouldn't win by suppressing voters, but we don't have a, a precedent or a mechanism of saying, well, all these votes should have been cast that weren't cast because someone made it too bloody hard to cast them. Uh, so we have to, you know, who knows what we would do. But, uh, but that, that th those fears around what is risk are, you know, are, are the, the gap that we see between Americans. What I don't know and Xander, I don't know if you have an answer here, is has anyone done any research on whether mail-in voting or sorry, absentee voting, they're the same thing, uh, has led to higher accounts of fraud? I do see that in, what's it, Alien Invasion 1, uh, PILF claims that, you know, 28 million, mail, 28 million ballots were mailed in the 2012, 2014, 2016, and 2018 elections, and unaccounted for. So you have, across these four elections, 28 million ballots 
that were not accounted for that were mailed out. And that means, and what they mean by unaccounted for is that election officials don't know what happened to them. And PILF believes that these unaccounted for ballots pose the risk of vast election fraud. Quote, these represent 28 million opportunities for someone to cheat. Did they, uh, did they get further into that? Not really. The, the headline. Or did you? What's that? Yeah. Or did you? The, I did a little bit. The headline number, as you mentioned, is 28, 28.3 million across those, those elections. And they are claiming with that figure that those represent the opportunity for vast fraud. And several uh, election officials from states that are included in that 28 million figure, so that, that you know, where 12 million of that 12, 28 million came from, I think, like four or five states that they looked at. And a separate ProPublica art, uh, article that investigated Pill uh, chatted with some election officials from those states. And the, the remark by one election official is like, basically, we, we do know what happens to those. They end up in landfills. Like a lot of people don't vote every year. Something like 30% of uh, most mail-in ballots are not cast in elections. And that's just kind of the number. And in my mind, like that, that kind of passes the initial gut check because we know that like 40 to 50% of Americans don't tend to vote in presidential elections anyways. So like even if you were registered as, as an absentee voter, or a mail-in voter, and you got uh, your ballot, you know, some people just aren't going to cast it. So uh, that's that's a little bit of this, the distinction there. I think something worth mentioning is that in the the best version of, of the uh, threat for mail-in voting fraud narrative is that there is a difference between absentee voting and uh, universal mail-in voting. Absentee ballots are where you are a registered voter and have already requested your ballot. Universal mail-in voting, which um, Trump has uh, tried to create a distinction between um, after, mm. you know, a couple of days after his first comment on it, is that everyone on register who is registered as a voter gets a ballot as opposed to people who have just requested it. So there's that slight distinction. Um, now, and I guess that distinction could matter because even if you registered but you had no intention of voting. Like if you request a ballot for this year, it's a signal of intent. So you're likely to actually return that ballot rather than throw it in the recycling bin. And if it's, if, if it's a universal like kind of mail bomb to everyone, you'll have that anywhere between 40 and 50% of people who just aren't going to bother. And, uh, and those will end up in the recycling bin. And I, I guess, you know, if I think about it, like, could someone kind of raid your recycling bin and like yank it out and go like, haha, now I have, you know, like just go down. I'm imagining, I'm in, you know, I'm in the suburbs here. I'm imagining someone, you know, figured out, okay, I got my mail-in ballot. A bunch of other people around here got their mail-in ballot. I'm just going to, on Sunday night before the recycling bin comes by or the recycling collection comes by, I'm just going to go raid a bunch of recycling bins to see if I can vote 40 times. Yeah, I guess it's possible. Um, I think uh, the last thing worth mentioning that you talked about was sort of this trade-off between, you know, uh, voter suppression versus eliminating voter fraud. And pivoting back to this article that was co-authored by Harvard, Microsoft, Stanford, UPenn researchers, they looked at one specific recommendation for eliminating uh, doubly registered voters. And this recommendation was issued by this organization called CrossCheck, which is one of the few databases or few organizations that maintain a database of cross-state voter information. And CrossCheck suggested that in the case where double registrations are found, eliminate the first one. So it's kind of an algorithm, right? It's like, if you find both, eliminate 
Um, these researchers found that if that were implemented, you would end up actually eliminating something like 300 legitimately registered voters for every doubly registered voter that you eliminated. And if you, ah. it, yeah, 300 to one. And if you extrapolate that to the, you know, uh, one to 300 for the entire American population, or not the entire, but the, um, uh, it, it could represent about 10 to 12 million Americans um, whose registration, voter res- registration might be canceled in the pursuit of eliminating those 40,000, 30 to 40,000 or so double votes. Um, that does not, that has nothing to do with the uh, voter ID laws that a lot of uh, Democrats often talk about as being part of voter suppression. It's just this one specific recommendation by this organization, Crosscheck. So potentially, you know, downside seems like it could be a lot better than what you're fixing. Right. Yeah. Huh. Uh, yeah. So the yeah, the so it sounds like okay, so it sounds like voter fraud has ever happened. People have double voted ever through various mechanisms. And I know one of the questions we need to at least grapple with is well, look, is you know, universal mail-in voting or is you know, large-scale mail-in voting going to dramatically increase the risk of voter fraud. And, you know, it seems like, you know, PILF took a swing at this saying, you know, they just saw, they saw 28 million ballots that weren't returned. And so they said there are 28 million opportunities to cheat. Uh, Snopes took a swing at this saying just that, you know, look, people just didn't return them, right? It's not missing. It's just nobody, you know, people didn't use them. Um, same with these kind of local election officials saying, yeah, they end up at the landfill. Calm down. So it would suggest that at least with uh, with the research that we've done here, and again, noting, I think it's important to note PILF's bias here because they're tr- they are clearly making a case, like they they have a they're trying to make a case that aliens are voting en masse uh, in some way, and. Uh, but but they weren't able to say about mail-in voting, they weren't able to find any particular evidence that mail-in voting led to fraud. They said that there are these opportunities for someone to cheat because a citizen didn't return their ballot and and maybe someone could go, you know, hunting through all the, you know, everyone's um, recycling bin uh, and, you know, and steal their steal their ballot, but, you know, you could do the same thing, you know, presumably you could do the same thing, you know, stealing someone's passport at their, at their, um, what's it, their mailbox or steal their driver's license at their mailbox and just go vote, right? Uh, and say like, hey, you know, even if you have voter IDs or laws, like someone could, you know, because we mail this stuff. So it, it, did you find anything, did you find anything that, that PILF or someone like them said was, you know, any compelling evidence that this this fraud problem got bigger with mail-in voting? They don't cover that. Um, I, okay, I, yeah. I read anecdotally, I can't remember where, that there are more incidences of fraud when it comes to mail-in voting than in-person voting. But it's of, mm-hmm. both are in the same order of magnitude. It's not, not which kind of makes sense. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What's, what I find, so maybe as we wrap this up, what I find so interesting about the mail-in voting fraud thing is why the red camp thinks that it's going to be why the red camp thinks that if if there is you know fraud uh in mail in voting like why it would benefit the democrats more now maybe it's maybe there's this kind of just sense of of civic duty right that hey it doesn't matter who wins if it's fraudulent it's bad right but i get the feeling i get the feeling that it's a little bit you know, and I, uh, yeah, I do. I, I I'll roll with this. I get the feeling it's a little bit the case that, um, that some of the right tribe that's really worried about universal mail-in voting or widespread mail-in voting believes that like somehow the Democrats are going to be the ones who benefit from this and not the Republicans. And I, what I haven't figured out yet is why that would be true, right? Why would why would Democrats get more out of it why, or, or more fraud out of it? Is it that, I don't know, Democrats are just bad people and Republicans are good people and they wouldn't cheat given the opportunity? I don't know. That that doesn't really make sense to me. I, I know that there are more Democrats. And I think like in terms of just sheer numbers, there are more registered Democrats than there are Republicans, I believe. So, oh, yeah, by a lot. Right? Yeah. Um, so the argument is if the turnout increases for Democrats, it's going to decrease the Republicans' you know, ability to win. So just simply make it, like lowering the threshold to vote risks the outcome of the election. At least that's the argument, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't I, – I mean I would, I would guess that nobody in, in public is making that argument, right? Saying we don't want universal mail-in ball- balloting because more Democrats will vote, right? You say that and – I mean – you can say anything now, and and apparently there are just no consequences anymore. But uh, but it does undermine your case because what you're saying is, well, we'll lose because it's easier for people to vote. And if if it's too easy for you know if people can vote, like if there aren't barriers to voting, we won't win, right? And uh, so I think the public argument is that is that mail-in voting will lead to mass fraud and the election will be illegitimate. It might be the case that in private. Uh, you might have Republicans saying, well, geez, yeah, you know, Republican turnout is higher in a lot of these states than Democratic turnout. If we make it easy to vote, that might normalize or equalize and then we'll get clobbered. And uh, and maybe that's what's going on. But I guess so. So far, so far in your investigation, you found that 
So to wrap this up and move on to the next part, you found in your investigation that the oft-cited PILF uh, saying that there's a fairly large scale of voter fraud in mistakenly double-counted numbers and that fraud is not nearly as big as we thought. Uh, and it seems that, um, you know, it seems that ballots cast uh, either either double ballots or or ballots from people who aren't allowed to vote cast made up for about you know one in ten thousand votes in Virginia, and that simpatico actually I did the math found something similar nationally from their own work so maybe about one in ten you know uh, up through twenty sixteen where again a large number of ballots were cast by mail already. Um, uh, about one in ten thousand votes cast might be fraudulent, and uh, and that mail-in voting is, of course, nothing new. Is it? Is that a reasonable reasonable That's summary? It. Um, cool. Sorry, I let's move to yours. Last thing I'm going to say about Pilf, which I should have mentioned in the beginning, is the head of Pilf is an attorney. It's actually a group of attorneys who about two weeks ago on August 11th was appointed by President Trump to sit on the U.S. Human Rights Commission. So there is some sort of relationship between the administration and the organization. Now, on to the next. Oh, interesting. All right, cool. So, all right. So uh, given whatever risk of uh, fraud that we do or don't have from expanded mail-in voting, there's a fight over mail-in voting. And, uh, you know, so what's the left tribe, or the blue tribe saying, hey, it's the left tribe, whatever. The What's the blue tribe saying? Well, uh, you know, Trump is, you know, tr- Trump knows he's, Again, there must be some underlying assumption that everyone has that if it's easy to vote, the Democrats will do better because the Democrats are really upset that, uh, you know, the the U.S. Postal Service is losing capacity. Uh, They think it's they think it's bad. The Republicans don't think it's bad. And uh, or that, you know, mail in voting might be threatened. They think it's bad. The Republicans don't think it's bad. And um, and so they see this as a way to to undermine the election either one by you know continuing voter suppression right so if the if the usps can't take your ballot and you got to vote in person and you're like you know sick or vulnerable or like don't you know can't wait in line for hours and hours because it's going to be a a mess due to the pandemic uh then you're not going to vote and boom you're hosed and so maybe like poor americans get disproportionately hosed from that or uh, just that, you know, it's going to be generally a mess and the confusion is going to lead to an uncertain outcome. I th- And I think the implied narrative is that, like, look, Joe Biden has maintained a nine plus point lead nationally. He's got a clear lead in, you know, the battleground states. The guy should win. And, you know, and, and we're afraid that Trump is going to go, well, look, the election was a mess. Who knows what's going to happen? I should just be dictator. Right. Or something like that. Now, of course, what. Uh, what nobody's saying is that uh, if there's not a clear, uh, if no president emerges from this electoral college process, and there's this whole electoral college layer, of course, that they're going to do, you know, if if the vote is a mess, the electoral college is going to do something. And if that doesn't work, it goes to Congress. And if that doesn't work, uh, Nancy Pelosi becomes president. And like, there's just like not an obvious outcome here where Trump becomes president um, un- unless... Uh, it gets thrown to Congress and Congress decides to vote for him to be president. So, um, which could happen because I think Congress votes by state. And if the Republicans were all part of some big conspiracy, it's possible. So, uh, so, you know, th- there is also there, 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 I, I've seen in the, some path of like, it's quite convoluted, but how Donald Trump can seal the election. But let's talk about what's actually going on in the United States Postal Service. So, 
One thing I think we want to set some context about is that there's two separate dealios going on. Dealio number one. Um, DeJoy, who's the postmaster general appointed by uh, not the president, but the board of governors of the United States Postal Service, um, who are all people that the Senate has to approve. So the Senate approves a postmaster, a governor of the of the board of the USPS, and they pick uh, their postmaster general. Uh, DeJoy was picked by them in May, started in June, and started removing uh, a bunch of mail sorting and mail sorting uh, machines and drop boxes, right? And of course, this is that's Delio one and Delio two, uh, which is separate, related but separate, is that Donald Trump is going mail-in voting bad, uh, it's fraudulent, and uh, you know, and of course, even went as far as to say, "Hey, I uh, let's see if we can find the quote. I think you wrote it down somewhere, uh, but but basically, I don't want to give." You know, I don't want to give the USPS a cash bailout of $25 billion because, ah, here we go, quote. Now, they need that money in order to make the post office work so it can take all those millions and millions of ballots, Trump said in an interview with Fox Business Network's Maria Bartiromo. Quote, now, if we don't make a deal, that means they don't get the money, right? So it's pretty clear that that Trump out loud is just saying, well, look, if we don't give them money, they can't do mail voting. Boom. Right? Which is like... Oop, I knocked my mic. <clears throat> Which is... Pretty clearly, he's saying he wants to make sure that the USPS is not able to conduct mail-in voting. And he wants to do that by starving them of money. So... Why are these two separate things? Well, DeJoy, you know, sorry. So so why am I talking about these being two separate things? Well, one of them is that I think a lot of people who are alarmed by this see these as part of the same plan, right? Plan The plan is kneecap the USPS and there won't be universal mail-in voting. And, the, uh, and there are two ways to do that, right? One of them is to starve it of money and the other way is to starve it of operational equipment. Right, take the equipment out. So, why why is it interesting that they're separate? Well, one of the things to note, right? So, so I think I, I we we need to talk about like recency bias um, because you know you get these videos of oh look at these mail sorting machines being like taken out and dismantled or like you know someone posts on Twitter like ah my blue box got taken away this is so scary and this is the first time any of us have ever seen that. So we're like, oh, this must be a new thing, right? This just must be, this must be brand new, never been done before. Detroit is just going in and, and tearing stuff out. Uh, but it's not new. So it turns out that since 2001, the amount in particular of paper mail has been in decline, thanks to electronic mail, of course. Um, it's been in dramatic decline. And in fact, since the 1980s, um, Pretty much every year, the United States Postal Service has been removing either sorting machines, blue boxes, or both, or entire facilities, right? So they've been rationalizing down. One of the, you know, why are they doing this? Well, there's less mail to handle. 
It's also the, but however, it is also the case that the number of boxes that they're handling has been trending up because people order things online more. Uh, and it's been really high over the last few months because of the pandemic, because people are shopping a lot more online. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks use the United States Postal Service, even um, Amazon does sometimes. So I think in particular for rural areas. So part of what's been going on. So what's been going on now is uh, DeJoy wanted 671 voting machines removed. And uh, in the previous, you know, in the previous years, including the Obama administration and the Bush administration and the Clinton administration, sorting machines. Did I say voting machines? I meant sorting machines. Sorting machines have been removed. Um, but this is a record. So if we look at 2018 uh, and 2019, 3 to 5% of capacity was, of sorting capacity was reduced. And this year, the plan was uh, 13% voting capacity, uh, sorting capacity is removed. Now it's a, it's a, you know, you might do a, it's, it's, it doesn't actually mean three to five times the number of machines because there are fewer machines, but it's a lot more machines. And, um, and you also have, uh, you, you do have a lot of kind of like USPS union leaders um, and uh, sort of veterans saying that this is, this seems like, this seems different this time. Now, one of the things to keep in mind about them is that, um, uh, you know, is that a, a, you know, the, a union under, you know, everyone has their self-interest, a union under threat um, of like losing overtime or losing positions um, is one that's going to, of course, say that things are bad. So uh, we have to take all this with a grain of salt. But I'm going to pause for a second um, because what I want to do is start digging into like whether this is obviously an attempt to kneecap the USPS, whether it could seriously impact the election and 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 more to come. But Xander, any any questions so far? No, I think that's really where we want to go, right? Because as we already talked about, the tribal narratives have been the legitimacy is being threatened by Trump or the legitimacy is being threatened by voter fraud. So one of the major issues right. that has come up is removing sorting capacity by the USPS. So I would be curious to hear what you found in your research in terms of how much was, you know, how much does the removal of voting capacity compare to prior years? Um you know, all of the detail about what different people are saying. I think that's where we need to go with the conversation. So what did you find? Great. So if we look back at the previous United States Postmaster General, who was who assumed office in 2015 and ended her term in office in 2020, and they have a five-year schedule. So like, so the timing, you know, it's interesting. People are like, ooh, the timing is really suspect. DeJoy was appointed in June. They have a five-year term, right? And then they get, and then a new one gets appointed. It's just how it works. Uh, it's, it is a coincidence of timing. Someone could say maybe they're taking advantage of the timing, but nobody said, nah, yes, let's <laughs> replace the old postmaster general and bring in a new Twirl one. Their yes, mustache. Right? Like it was just exactly precisely what I was doing. <laughs> um, and, and so it just happened to be timing. And of course she was appointed by, um, she was appointed by Barack Obama. Uh, no, sorry. She was not appointed by Barack Obama. She was appointed by the Board of Governors of the United States Postal Service and worked with the Barack Obama administration as well as the Trump administration. Um, and she ended up uh, she ended up overseeing shutting down uh, how many total 
how many total mail sorting facilities? I think a few dozen. Yes, a few, do- and and I actually don't have the full number, but she, but a, a total like actual facilities, a whole building just shut down, um, and it was due to budget cuts brought on by less mail. Um, and congressionally mandated pension funding rules, which were passed in 2006, which required the United States Postal Service to pre-fund medical benefits for retire- for pension retirees 50 years in advance. So all of a sudden they just had this like big spike of money that they had to come up with. And the United States Postal Service is not a regularly funded tax or is not regularly funded by taxpayer dollars. I didn't know that. Right. So we're talking we're talking about a bailout right now, but they don't they don't just like get. Like they just don't get, they're they're just not a line item in the annual budget of the United States federal government. So they actually, so this is one of the things that I think is really interesting. Um, And so when everyone, you know, people talk about like, oh, the USPS is losing money. And then other people go like, well, do you talk about the military losing money? Like it's a service. And we go, yes, but like, just be like the rules that have that Congress has passed for the United States Postal Service so that they are not a line item in the budget. They have to pay their own way. That's how it's always been. Maybe it should change. Maybe it shouldn't. That's not the point. But the point is that they actually have to care about their budget, unlike basically anyone else that is a government agency. And that's part of why over the past 30 years, they have been consistently reducing capacity. Uh, Because as the number of Mail ballots goes down, or mail ballots, pieces of mail goes down. They have to spend less, right? And um, and so and so there has been consistent reduction of physical capacity over the last thirty years. Now, DeJoy has clearly been more aggressive, right? And uh, you know, and there are there are all sorts of examples of. Um, there are all sorts of examples of, of like pieces of mail being delayed. Um, it is worth noting that Brennan was Brennan had Brennan, the previous postmaster general, had pitched actually just getting rid of Saturday delivery in order to save costs. Um, and so, you know, that that would have been a pretty dramatic change as well. What DeJoy has gone for is a dramatic reduction in total sorting capacity and overtime. And that's actually where a lot of the delays are coming from is he said, you can't do, you know, we're going to, we're going to try out just not having overtime because overtime's expensive. Um, we're going to try out not having overtime. And it's really hard to lay people off when there's a strong labor union. Um, I can speak from experience having been so, so like I'm kind of putting myself into Joy's shoes here as well as I can, because I was a go around and like help a unprofitable factory make money again, consultant. And so getting rid of overtime is like part of the playbook getting rid of excess capacity and kind of like forcing everyone to rationalize down is part of the playbook. Uh, we tended not to get rid of machines. We tended to, to try to get rid of like hours of that the factory was running because labor was a big part of cost. One of the, th- so, so is DeJoy like operating from a like operational efficiency and like try to get the budget back on track playbook? Sure. One of the things that makes life tough for the USPS is that they've also have constraints on what they're allowed to charge um, so they actually like lose money sending stuff to rural areas. So they like it, it, what is crazy about how the U.S. has always has run the USPS for a long time is that it says, well, we're not going to subsidize you at all, but you're also not allowed to not allowed to like let the market dictate what your prices are. Your prices have to be artificially low. So like the USPS is just going to be doomed, right? Like I wouldn't I wouldn't run that company. That sounds terrible. And so uh, DeJoy has this background of 
uh, of having been at a of having been the CEO of a place called XPO Logistics and uh, sorry no New Breed Logistics, which was sold to XPO Logistics for like six hundred million dollars. He made a bunch of money. Uh, he became the CEO of XPO Supply Chain, uh, which and XPO worked closely with. Uh, was, was was like a contractor of the USPS. So like he got appointed with with like some, you know, he's he's an expert in running logistics, right? And and making things profitable, right? So like if you take the election out of it and you paint this picture of this guy, it's like, okay, this makes sense, especially for, you know, a more Republican administration that want things, wants things to be efficient and lean and, and all that good stuff. And, but he is a mega donor to Trump. Uh, although he was first donating to Jeb Bush's campaign in 2016, uh, fair amount of money with that. Um, it is, it is the case that he still has like deep ties to XPO, uh, and that they were, again, they work closely with the USPS and XPO also has a lot of mail sorting capacity. So there is a risk of conflict of interest here that maybe he's trying to reduce USPS mail sorting capacity to have XPO take on that mail sorting capacity and for him and, you know, and his ownership, his stake in that company become more valuable. Um, that is certainly one thing that if there were not an election going on, we could be looking at with these moves. Did you happen to find in any of your research, Eric, how much uh, stock he still owns in XPO? Because XPO is a, it's a public company. Yes. So he owns somewhere between 30 and 75 million in XPO, which is a couple, you know, it's a couple billion dollar company. And uh, so substantial. And he did sell his Amazon stake, I believe. Like when he became the postmaster general, he sold a bunch of positions, including Amazon, possibly his UPS stake as well, but did not sell his stake in XPO and uh, and remains one of the larger, you know, single person shareholders there, which makes sense, right? Because he, he got acquired and and owned a ton of it. Uh, so yeah, he, he jumps on in June and gets moving. Uh, from the Associated Press, quote, mail delays likely as new postal boss pushes cost cutting. What was the other quote I had? Here we go. Uh, from government executive, quote, looking to cut costs, new USPS leader takes aim at overtime and late trips. So if we look at this in isolation, it really does look like an aggressive version of a similar playbook where instead of instead of a USPS insider, you bring in an outsider, someone that's had to be profitable in the past, who knows how to make it happen, right? Who's run profitable, like, like logistics and, and mail and package sorting before. Get him involved, have him cut costs, good luck. And uh, of course, the union is going to not like that, right? And so how does this all tie back to the election? Well, again, he has proposed a much more aggressive cut than we've ever seen before, 13% of all mail capacity. Um, And there have been delays as a result of that. So on the generous interpretation, you could say, well, look, there are of course going to be challenges when you get it, you know, when you when you show up and you're aggressive. And and there is a strategy where you say, let's let's embrace the pain and eat the pain and you know drive the operational improvement necessary to be able to operate with less capacity so that we can meet our budget. Um, it sometimes works. Now, do you want to play that game with the USPS? You know, it, it, you can argue no. Um, but it is much more aggressive. So that's the generous take. A less generous take is that he is trying to reduce the capacity of the USPS and demonstrate that the United States Postal Service 
uh, because of his own decisions, can't handle, uh, you know, the needs of Americans. And so maybe, oh, I don't know, XPO Logistics or someone else should do it. So um, so there is a there is an angle due to his conflict of interest that uh, there's a desire to kneecap our sacred postal service institutions. And then, of course, there's the question, is he trying to sabotage the election? So let's look at some numbers here. In 2016, there were 130 million total ballots cast. So that's a lot. And let's say, you know, let's say it's even more. Let's say it's 150 million. Seems like a lot, right? So we're going to have this huge surge of mail. So 150 million. Xander, do you know how many mail pieces the United States Postal Service handles? Yes, but only because you said it earlier in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So every single day, the United States Postal Service handles 472 million mail pieces. So let's say that, um, like, let's say that in the month of October, every single American who's going to vote needs to vote by mail. It means that you don't have 150 million pieces of mail. You have 300 million because you have to return them, right? You send them out and you return them. So you have 300 million pieces of mail. And that's, you take, uh, and so in that month, actually, I'm going to do the math live. So we have 472 pieces of mail. And in a month, there are 30 days, but we only we only send mail for six out of every seven of them. So we have uh, 472 times, oh, October, it's 31 days, times six divided by seven. And we have a total amount of mail of uh, 12.5 billion uh, pieces of mail. 12.5 billion. And so let's take our 150 million and divide it by that. And what do we get? See, I could have done this beforehand, but I'm doing it live. So what we get is uh, it's 1.2% of that month's Now, you said a moment ago you need to send and return, so it should be 300 million ballots. Ah, Thank you. You're right. It's 300 million. So it's going to be 2.4%. Yeah. Thank you. See, this is why, this is why there are two of us. So 2.4%. Uh, yeah, it's 2.4% for that, for that month, which is not, you know, not tiny. However, it's not massive. And one of the things to note, and, and, uh, cause I've been trying to, I've been trying to play this out. I've been trying to play out the, the kind of like, how could this really lead to, like, unless it is an unprecedented disaster and like everything catches fire and like mail is getting lost, right? Because we're talking about delays right now, which are not good. Delays in the mail are not good. I'm not saying they can. Um, and I'm not even necessarily saying, I'm, I'm actually, I, I am not saying that I agree with DeJoy's approach. I think it is, I think it is, again, I think the generous interpretation is that it's reckless. That's my feeling about it. But, um, but, what could this mean for the election? Well, again, 2.4% increase in total mail throughput for that month, um, assuming that you know nobody else adjusts in any other way. And the what you know again what that what that means is that we could have some delays. How could the election actually go deeply awry here? I think the way that it could go deeply awry is if the delays are so severe that it takes months for ballots to trickle in, right? Not, oh, it's delayed by a couple days, right? But that it takes months because it turns out that, like, for example, ballots cast by our troops overseas sometimes show up after election day. Like, they just do. And then they get counted. Right. And if it was close, we wait. Right. We've seen that in we saw that in 2000 in Florida. 
right? It was so close that they said, okay, we're going to do a recount and we're going to wait a little bit to make sure that all those absentee, like every single ballot gets in and we count every darn one, right? And we see in election after election after election, you don't have 100% of precincts reporting that the night's through, right? You, you, you have an estimate of who won at that night. And so if people are sending their ballots you know, usually it, 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 what's interesting is it says you have to post, you know, for any mail, for any ballot mail, you have to postmark it by election day. Now, a lot of people do that beforehand. So you're spreading out this capacity a little bit, but you have to postmark it by election day. And then you've got some time for it to come in. So what it, what's likely to happen during the election is that, well, you know, even if capacity is great, there's going to be a lot of votes that we, you know, we, we don't even know if they've, how many votes there are to count. And it takes longer to count them. And so probably like, look, if you're planning to just like stay up all night on election night and, and know who's going to be president in January, that's probably not going to happen. But all that aside, mail delays mean it will take a few more days or if it's really bad, a couple more weeks for this mail to show up. And could the president use that to say this is illegitimate? I mean, maybe, right? But the only way it ends up the only way I can see it end up being threatening is if the mail gets lost. And that, like, I, I, I don't see any reason to think that, like, the number of mail sorting machines uh, is directly related to the likelihood of, of a large amount of ballot mail being just lost. So my take, like, my take on the facts is that I just, I don't see a super clear tie between what's going on, what DeJoy is doing, which again, I don't like, I don't even think he's, he's doing it well. Um, and he, he may even be so dumb that he thinks that somehow just like, ah, yes, fewer mail sorting machines means, uh, yes, means that like Democrat mail will be, will be destroyed by this lack of voting, sorting machines. But like, you can hear me twisting my mustache, but I just I don't see how it steals the election for the president. That that's it. Um, I, I think the I, I got into a couple arguments about this on Facebook, and I think like the most panicked stuff I've heard was that well, things will just generally be chaotic, and that general chaos will cause Americans to not have you know faith that their votes were counted, and therefore uh, Trump will steal the election. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, again, I don't like what's happening to the United States Postal Service right now. They are asking for a bailout. DeJoy is part of the group asking for that bailout, by the way, although he's saying he doesn't need it. Um, and other top, top officials in the United States Postal Service are saying they actually don't need the bailout to be able to handle the election. They need the bailout to be able to handle stuff like the pension burden that they got in 2006, like, that's what they want the bailout for. The Postal Service isn't showing up saying, look, if you don't give us $25 billion, the election is going to go, you know, grind to a halt. Um, that's not what's even being said. So, uh, so to some extent, I shrug. I think it is, you know, I'm obviously painting a picture where there is not this, like, deep conspiracy to hand Donald Trump the election by eliminating overtime and a larger than normal number of mail sorting machines. By the way, many of those are being replaced with replaced by box sorting machines. Like DeJoy isn't even shutting down facilities the way that Brennan did. It's just that there's more boxes than mail pieces. Right. And, and so he's just like changing what's there to a large extent. 
and and putting in different equipment uh, to to handle the surge in boxes. But I just I I don't think it's obvious that there's a that there's a conspiracy. And even if there is, I don't think it's obvious that it would um, hamper the results of the election. And uh, and it's also entirely possible that DeJoy is a bad guy that is trying to undermine faith in the USPS generally in order to make a bunch of money with XPO Logistics. And uh, so, yeah, it could be anything. I just don't think, I think like the context that's important is that this is not new behavior by the USPS or a postmaster general. Um, it is the most aggressive that anyone's ever gotten in terms of capacity you know, uh, paper mail capacity reduction. It does seem to have led to delays and it's not clear to me how, you know, and he says he has no intention of, of plugging those back in. Like he may even have a giant bonus on the table for reducing budget. Right. And he's just, he's just saying like, Nope, I'm going to hit my numbers. Right. But um, who knows, but, or, or again, he, he wants to kneecap the USPS. Right. And, uh, and make a bunch of money through XP logistics somehow. But, um, but yeah, it's, I, I am, so one of the reasons I, to circle all the way back, we go back to that YouGov poll that said, you know, uh, if you had, you know, uh, which, which most close, which comes closest to your view? Trump legitimately fears that fraudulent postal voting will cost him the election, or Trump is trying to delegitimize the outcome because he doesn't think he'll win a majority of votes. I think as far as the USPS is concerned, or mail-in voting is concerned with either of these, I'm I am personally in the neither camp, and that wasn't an option in the YouGov poll. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of the times, the way that polls are structured will change the interpretation. I mean, that makes sense. Like research design, the way you design a study may change the effects of the outcome, and that's something worth keeping in mind uh, in the next couple of months, just as you come across data. Now, something that I think is worth kind of thrown out there into the into the world. Actually, maybe you mentioned it to me at first, Eric. I don't, I don't remember. But, you know, we have, we have clearly complained in the past about 24-7 news cycle and the need to constantly be sensationalizing every minute to get eyeballs. Um, and Eric's written about this extensively. So if you haven't read Wedged, his book, again, go buy it right now on Amazon. Um, but in this, this election in particular, like, there's a very good chance that a larger than normal amount of ballots aren't going to be, aren't going to be counted by election night, just for the reasons that you pointed out. I mean, maybe they will. Maybe the the 2.4% increase or whatever it was in mail uh, due to the election is totally manageable. And it seems like the USPS is not necessarily asking for the bailout for that reason. So maybe that's not a problem. But do you think it might make sense for there to be sort of like a, uh, a broad agreement and the uh, large media broadcasters to just kind of like agree to not report the results this year until all the votes are in instead of like tracking every single second of every single moment. Cause I feel like part of the opportunity to start questioning results comes when an initial perspective is challenged with more data. And then all of a sudden people start distrusting the source. Do you think that might square some of the challenges that we're seeing this year? Yeah. I mean, and, and, I I also, you know, I would also love to pick the color of the horn of my unicorn, right? Because I... We can still put it out there, man. We can put it out there. (laughs) Good vibes. Yeah, I just don't see, you know, there's so much money made on election night. Like, I never, ever, 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 ever watch cable 
TV, cable news except one day out of every four years, right? I'll, it is like, you know, it is Christmas. So, um, and so I think, you know, I think it's unfortunately going to be, it, it is something that kind of needs to be that, that like economically these guys are dependent on that they're going to do, but, um, it would, yeah, it, uh, maybe one thing that made elections a little less like nail bitey back in the day was like, yeah, you knew that it was going to be some time before. I mean, there's a reason that, that the way the U S was originally built, that there was some time between the votes getting cast and uh, when the president showed up. And it's because one, you actually had to, well, sorry, the biggest reason is the electoral college needed time to meet and, you know, and, and discuss who the president was going to be, which nobody ever bothered with anyway. It would have been cool. would have been a cool experiment, but it didn't happen. But, um, you know, but you take a little bit of pressure off because it's like, look, we don't need to know on November 4th who's going to be our president on January 19th, right? We can find out in December. That's fine. We'll figure it out. So uh, that would be that would be pretty rad. Um, however, what I suspect is that you know is that our our august media institutions will at least be uh, responsible enough to on November third say, okay, here's what we know. Not much, <laughs> right? What one can hope, uh, but we'll see. Uh, an- another anecdote that I I just wanted to bring up on this podcast, not because it necessarily means anything, but it kind of made me raise my eyebrow this week was um, as you have pointed out on some of your Facebook threads, like a lot of the mail sorting capacity is being removed in places where the election is probably really not that contested, like in California, for example, right? Like where it's going to go, it's going to go blue, right? Um, something that, something that's happened in the last week in my zip code in LA has been uh, substantial mail delays. Like there have been several days where the mail just hasn't yeah. come happened for my neighbors I kind of tracked it on next door it happened with me i don't know what that means but it's interesting to note yeah yeah it it yeah we did look at a map of where a lot of the capacity is being reduced and i remember actually i do think this is important i remember someone looked at the capacity was being reduced and said you know and and said man there's a there's a very high overlap with where capacity is being reduced and where Hillary Clinton won big. Hmm, fishy, right? And you look at the map and like most of the, like most of the changes, the biggest changes are happening in Connecticut, Massachusetts, California, uh, New Jersey, right? And also there are some in Florida. And, you know, and so I said like, well, look, yeah, it's big urban centers that have a lot of voting machines. So most of the voting machines would be removed by areas that already have a lot of voting machines. And in particular, a lot of these are places where populations have declined over the past couple of decades, like the Northeast. And and so like, you know, really, you know, California, like you're looking at this and seeing reductions in California, Massachusetts, and like thinking that's going to help Trump steal the election. Then someone goes, well, it's also, you know, there are also reductions in Florida. And you're like, okay, cool. But like it, there just wasn't a correlation. Like there was kind of a scatter shot of stuff across urban area of reductions across urban areas. And I, I had friends of mine who just like, just kept insisting that, okay, sure. There's not a correlation, but some of the reductions are in areas that are swing States. So it like, see smoking gun. Right. And it's just, it, it, it's, I don't think that maps a smoking gun. I think that map is some, 
you know, voting machines got removed by some places, some of which are in electorally interesting areas and some of which are not at all in electorally interesting areas. And one of those places, for example, is Southern California, where there are a lot of delays and a lot of headaches right now. And Donald Trump is like, Donald Trump cannot, like, if Donald Trump won California, that would be the surest side. Like, even if he was trying, like, if he's trying to steal the election, don't win California. <laughs> right? If you're, like, stuffing the ballot box and trying to say, like, and trying to steal the election, you don't win California because that's how you tell everyone that you stole the election. Right, for sure. I, I think on one of those threads, I, I even commented, I was one of the folks who said, a lot of this capacity is being removed in historical swing states. And the comment that you made, just made now, about there being uh, perhaps a more conclusive explanation if you look at the correlation with urban centers and population shifts long term, that made me change my mind. I reconsidered my mind. Hmm. Yeah, and, and it is the case that some of the, yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case that, that some of the capacity has been reduced in, in swing states. And that, that, may mean that it takes us longer to understand where the, um, you know, w what the outcome of those swing states are. Yeah, what we ended up, what, what, what me and other friends on Facebook, who are all delightful and like we ended up having a great conversation at the end where I changed my mind about a few things as well and it really informed this episode. So thank you to folks like Yuki for the great conversation. But the, you know, but, but it, you know, I, th I think the, the, the most conspiratorial way you could look at that map is say, okay, well, they're removing capacity from these swing states in order to steal the election somehow. And also removing it from other places to cover it up, right? It's kind of like part of a smokescreen. You're like, eh, I mean, I guess, but then, but then like, it's sort of like every non-pattern, right? Every, like everything that is evidence in favor of a conspiracy theory and then everything that, it, or a conspiracy and everything that is not evidence in favor of a conspiracy are all evidence in favor of conspiracy, right? We look at this like, oh, there's not a correlation. It's like, ah, yes, and that's intentional, right? It's intentionally not a correlation. It's like, okay, well, then then no evidence can help us here. So, um, and so people are gonna, and and I get why people see these things being very tied, like without having done a bunch of research, the timing is very suspect. Um, and again, it it still somehow could be, it, you know, I think we. We certainly can't rule out foul play, but I think people saying like, well, Trump said that, you know, he wants to not have mail-in voting and this guy is removing a whole ton of machines, like jumping to the conclusion that these are definitely related and DeJoy is removing machines in order to stop mail-in voting for Trump. Like until you dig into it, you're like, it seems good at first pass, right? And we get a little deeper and it goes and and we start going like, okay, it's less and less clear that these are related. It's not obvious that they're not, but it's certainly less clear that they are. So I think with that, um, we're kind of coming to the end of the show. It's been a longer episode than normal, but yeah, you know, there's a lot going on right now. It's an election year. Uh we we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up on the Reconsider Pipeline soon. As we mentioned, we put together this long-form investigation. Eric, the notes that you made for this podcast, I imagine, we'll put up in our show notes, right? And uh, yeah. for, for, for you know, we pitch our show notes every episode, but our show notes are not just a couple of links. They're very detailed, and if you're, you know, you have five minutes and you don't have the time to listen to the entire podcast, you can get some of the main concepts by looking at the show notes on reconsidermedia.com. So do check that out. We... We do have a newsletter that has become more active in the last couple of months. We're really trying to focus on that and be engaged with everyone. 
Um, we just finished uh, what turned out to be two weeks of Stoicism week. That was just kind of my fault because I, I paced it out differently. But we have a new infographic on Stoicism and how Stoicism can help you have better political conversations. So that's new. We're doing more infographics. We have a, a really new, exciting thing that no one else has that's coming up soon. And I'm not going to say what it is yet, but we should be launching with it probably in about a week and a half. And it's directly election relevant. So if you do want to be updated when we launch this cool new service that that other people don't have, sign up for our newsletter on reconsidermedia.com. For sure. All right. Let's let you guys go. This has been a long one. Remember, as always, this is this is a great example not to let the pundits do the thinking for you. And, you know, and it's hard to do all the research. Don't let us do the thinking for you either. That's why we give you the show notes. Go go pick us apart if you don't like what we have to say. Give us some feedback. And, uh, you know, and, and of course, pause and reconsider. This is, this is Xander signing off. We'll see you next time. Adios. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.